happening. <laughs> hey, there's some times that things happen in, in the body of Christ where if you're in the police department, you'll understand this, that when incidents happen to uh, individuals in, in, the, in, the, in the regular city populace, it's one thing, but when it happens to one of their own, it's, a whole nother, it's taken to a whole other level. And today when we talk about the, the crime, the crime that's being committed, it's more than just somebody that you know. A lot of times it happens to us, the body of Christ. And we ought to at times in our life get very upset that the enemy is able to come in and victimize the body of Christ the way that he's been doing. And so this morning, would you stand with me as we read God's word in John chapter number 14. John chapter number 14 and verse number 11. It says, believe me. Everybody say, believe me. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Heavenly Father, in the name of Jesus, I thank you that you've given us evidence that Jesus Christ is the resurrected Savior, the Son of the living God, who is sent to stop the work of the thief and the enemy from killing, stealing, and destroying from us, and to give us life and life in abundance to the full till it overflows. And God, I pray that we would receive it this morning in Jesus' name we pray, and all God's people said, amen. You can be seated this morning. The title of this morning's sermon is The Victim. The Victim is the title of this morning's sermon, and there are some things that when a crime scene investigator walks on the crime scene that they do, and literally this is it, the very nature of what appears to be obvious should th trigger a thought process in the CSI's mind of what actually occurred at the crime scene. When you open up the scriptures, there should be something very obvious that begins to take place as you begin to read the Bible. You don't just open it up and say, oh, I'm going to do the lucky dip and find a scripture and just pick out my one verse because you may be saying, God, speak to me, and you may pick out the verse that says Judas killed himself. <laughs> God's not telling you to do that. But that's how the enemy works. He victimizes us because of our own environment that we're trapped in and held in bondage to. And so when you get on the scene of God's words, you must begin to open it. And I pray that now that we've gone through this series enough, as you open the word of God, you'll be able to say this, what happened here? Who did it happen to? Who were the people on the scene? Who was the crime done to? Who was the victim in this? What did God do in the area of redemption to restore his people? And there is an obvious thought process that's triggered in your life as you begin to go through and into the word of God. Now, a brief recap of this whole series is simply this, that what is the scene that we're talking about? The scene that we're talking about is the whole word of God. The whole word of God is the scene that is taking place, the one that we're talking about. What is the crime? The crime is sin. It happened in the Garden of Eden. And since that time, the, the, the devil, the enemy, the thief, the, the whatever you want to call him, has been victimizing the body of Christ over and over and over and over and over again, so much that Jesus even clarified it, said, I'll make it clear, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I am come that you would have life and have it in abundance to the full till it overflows, or abundant life is what he's talking about. And so what is God's motive in the Bible? God wrote the Bible with a specific motive, a specific agenda. That motive, that agenda is the motive and agenda of redemption. Redemption. He wanted a lost people who have been victimized by the thief, who have been the, the, the subject of crime scene themselves, who have been victimized and abused by the enemy. He said, my job, my agenda in writing this whole thing called the Bible is to prove to you that I'm God in the beginning, I'm God in the end, and even though things got messed up in the middle, my plan is redemption the whole way through, and I'm going to prove it out to you, is what he said. That's what God decided to do. That's why your whole Bible is here. And that's why the Bible is not an all-encompassing history book. It's a book written with a motive and an agenda. And some people are saying, well, couldn't he have read it a little bit shorter? <laughs> no, he was proving his love to you. He didn't write you a short love note like a kid did in elementary school. He wrote you a Bible with 66 books. 
And he said, I want you redeemed. I want you back. I want you to come into my presence again. And we're going to talk about that some this morning. And remember, the job of a crime scene investigator is a lot more than getting the facts. It's finding the truth. The crime scene we're going to talk about here this morning for a little bit is going to take place out of Luke chapter 19, verse 45. Luke chapter 19, verse 45 is where we're going to start this morning. So if you have your Bibles, begin to open it up to there. Now's the time when you start taking notes, Facebook them, tweet them, whatever you want to do. Pull out your phone and periscope it for 30 minutes if that's the only way you can get your notes down. But I need you to take notes and I need you to remember because God is going to show you today how to not be victimized anymore. And how you are going to be set free from the, from the things that the enemy is doing to you. And the scene picks up here in Luke chapter number 9, verse 45. The time of the year is the time of the year called Passover. We'll get to that in just a second. And let's read what God says about this in Luke 19, 45. And the Bible says, And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him. But they did not find anything they could do, for all the people were hanging on his words. Man, I pray you're hanging on the words of Jesus this morning. Amen? You're waiting for him to say something. You're about to say, that's for me. That's for me. One day, we're jumping into the next chapter, chapter 20. See, just because the, par- or the chapter stopped doesn't mean Jesus did. One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up to him and said, tell us by what authority you do these things or who gave you this authority. And he said to them, I will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? They discussed it with one another saying, um, people will stone us to death if we say, for, for they say that John was a prophet. So they answered, they did not know where it came from. And Jesus said to him, then neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. And I want you to write this verse in chapter down, Matthew 21, starting in verse 12. Matthew 21, starting in verse 12, it's the same account, just in a different book. It says it a little bit different when it starts out, but roughly the same thing. And then write down John chapter number 2. John chapter number 2, beginning in verse number 13 through 17. John chapter 2, 13 through 17, and the Bible says the Passover of the Jews, starting in 13, was at hand, and so this gives us the time. Jesus went up to Jerusalem. This gives us the place where the scene is taking place, and in the temple, this gives us the specific location. He found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and and the money changers were sitting there and making a whip of cords. I love that part. He drove them all out of the temple, and the sheep and the oxen and he poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he, told the, and he told those who sold pigeons, take these things away and do not make my father's house a house of trade. And his disciples remembered what was said about him, for zeal for his house will consume him. And so now that we got the time frame, we got the time frame of Passover, we got the location, it's in Jerusalem, we got the specific uh, place where it took place called the temple let's talk about those things just for a minute because if we're a csi we don't want to just get facts we want to know the truth and start with passover what is passover you read about it all through the scriptures passover happened way back in the old testament with moses god's people were being victimized once again and way back in the old testament god's people were being victimized by pharaoh the leader of egypt at the time and god says i am about to deliver my people so moses this is what you need to do You'll take a lamb and you'll bake it, or, or, you'll, or you'll, yes, you'll bake it, all of it, its inner parts. You'll roast it, it says. And then you'll take some of the blood of the lamb and you'll put it on the sides and the top of the doorframe so that when the death angel passes over, 
it will see the blood and it will pass over your house and will only kill the firstborn of Egypt. And so that's where Passover took place. So Moses instructed his people. He said, take some of the blood, put it on the sides and the tops of the doorposts. And so that night, as they all got ready, prepared to leave Egypt, they still didn't know how they were leaving Egypt. Get this. You may not know how you're going to get out of your situation today, but get ready because the blood of Jesus is still here. The blood of Jesus is still powerful. The blood of Jesus, if you'll apply it to your life, you can be in abject poverty this morning or in a destitute, dire situation, and then by tomorrow morning, God can have changed your whole wide world. Come on now. He can do it. And so in this, the Israelites, they put blood on the sides and the tops of the doorframe. And that night, sure enough, the death angel passed over and it struck down the firstborn of everything in the land that was not covered by the blood. And the Bible says there was great mourning and great outcry across all of Egypt. And Pharaoh finally said, let him go. <laughs> Come on. I'm ready for the blood to be applied to your life. And it caused such havoc on the enemy that he says, just let him go. <laughs> Let him go. I don't want to see you victimized any longer. So that was Passover. Now, years down the line, God said, I need you to remember this every year at this date as a memorial, as a festival, declaring that I am the God who passed over you and set you free from everything that was keeping you in bondage. So every year from that point on, they kept and observed something called the Passover. Well, now Jesus, thousands of years later, walking into Jerusalem, it is the time of Passover. They're about to celebrate this festival because of what happened with Moses. And Jesus walks into Jerusalem and walks um, up to the place called the temple where they would do the yearly sacrifice. The temple is the place that they built where they would come and meet with God. And as they build the temple, this is the place where they would come and they would offer sacrifices. They would atone for their sin. God would forgive the sins of a nation. Amen. I'm praying God forgives the sins of our nation. Come on. And so they would sacrifice an animal. The blood would cover and atone for their sin. God would forgive the nation. This is where the presence of God would manifest into sin, and God would speak with his people, and the people could speak to God. God would hear his people, and God would speak back, and they would converse, and God would give instruction for the year at the temple. And so Jesus walks into this place called Jerusalem, walks up to the temple, and on the journey to the temple, this is where all the men of the nation would come once a year. And so on the journey to the temple, you had many peasants, many poor people, many people who didn't have a lot of money coming, and they would go on a long journey. So instead of taking a, a, a lamb or taking an oxen or taking a pigeon and carrying it on a long journey, when they got to the temple, they would simply just buy one. It was a lot easier, a little bit more convenient, and so they would buy a lamb at the temple. And so as they would make this long journey, they would come to do this once a year. Now, when they would get to the bottom of the mountain, so they've walked into Jerusalem, they've walked up to this mountain, they're about to ascend up to the temple. Now, this temple, the amazing thing about it, it's built on the very mountain, and the Jewish people believe it's built in the very spot that Abraham was told to sacrifice his son Isaac, and God stilled his arm and said, look at the ram in the thicket. And he said, take that one and sacrifice it. So the very place where God made his covenant promise and fulfilled it is the place that they were going. Now you got to remember Jesus in his mindset knows he's the beginning and the end. He's the alpha and the omega. So he's not thinking, oh, we're going to the temple. It's a certain day called Passover. No, he's thinking of Old Testament, what my father did, all the things that happened to Abraham, the deliverance of Moses and the, and the Israelites, all the way up to now as he's walking up this temple knowing what's about to take place. And so as they would get to the bottom of this mountain, they would come and they would wash at the bottom of the mountain. They were on a long journey. They would wash off the bottom of a mountain. And after they were clean, they would get a white robe and put it on. So the cleansing this represents 
for uh, um, just God washing them clean. The white robe represented forgiveness. And then they would make a trek all the way up to the top of this mountain where the temple was. And as they were going up to the temple, they would say, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. It's from the psalmist. And so what they were talking about is we're trekking up this mountain. We're about to enter the gates of the temple with thanksgiving. We're about to go into the innermost place. So we're going to enter his courts with praise. He wasn't just saying, hey, when you walk into a building, celebrate. No, he says, praise him for the gates. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. How do you enter the throne room of God? Enter it with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. Even if it's bad, enter his courts with praise because you got something to praise him for. And if you don't praise him by faith, that you're about to have something to praise him for. He's fixing to set you free. And so get ready. So they would trek up this mountain. They'd say, enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his courts with praise. And they would get ready to sacrifice the lamb at the top of the mountain where they would buy. Now, when you got to the top of the mountain and there was the temple here, I'm giving y'all a ton of information about the crime scene, okay? Some of you are like, dang, I ain't heard this much about anything. When you got to the top of the mountain and you saw the temple, it would be in the very center. And then you'd have a gate on the outside of it. In the very center of the temple, there was a place called the most holy place. And some of us call it the holy of holies. That's where God would descend and meet with the high priest and talk with him. Give him instruction. And the presence of God would manifest in a place called the Holy of Holies. Just outside of that, you would have the holy place. Now, the high priest could go into the most holy place, the Holy of Holies. Outside of that, you had the holy place. Okay? And then priests, other priests could go into the holy place. Outside of that, you had the outer courts. That was, that's where the brazen labor was, or the, the, the bronze altar is and the, and the bronze labor is. And men could enter the outer court. And then outside of that, you had the outside the outer court, which is called the court of the Gentiles. And it's in that area where outside the court of the Gentiles, where people would gather, Jewish people and non-Jewish people, believers in God, whether they were Jewish or not, and non-believers come to see the festival, would gather. And they had all these people set up with tables, and they were selling animals, they were doing currency exchange. This is like a business, okay? Because people had to come and buy lambs or oxen or pigeons or whatever they were going to sacrifice. And so coming from all different areas of Israel, they would have to first come to the money changers. You got to do an exchange. It's like when you go to a foreign country. Not everybody takes the U.S. dollar as much as we would like to think. They don't. Okay? So you would walk up and you would first have to go to the money changers. And they went to the money changers. And when they would change, they would say, hey, here's 20 of my dollars. And they would give back $4. That's a bad exchange rate. Okay? It's called uh, five to one. <laughs> Not good. So they would exchange. And after every exchange, the temple, it was called the, the, the difference in it. They say, well, how, how come it's not one to one? Oh, there's a temple tax. Really? You're taxing people to hear the voice of God? <laughs> and so even in the temple tax that was here, they would take the money and set aside, but the high priest would get a cut of the temple tax. You see the gross distortion of the very man of God who is supposed to lead the nation into the presence of God is charging money and taking a cut after extorting people for what they needed. And so on a long journey, they would come. They just got ripped off at the temple tax table. And then they would come over here to buy their lamb. And they would come over here to buy their lamb. And a lamb that was normally worth, we'll say $20, give me $60 for him. What? It's only worth 20 Hey, the going rate today... Everybody needs a lamb. 60. And so they'd pay the price. 
And they would leave more empty and broke than when they came. And God looks down on this and says, this cannot be happening. I have come today at Passover to speak to my people and show them my power and to manifest myself before them. And they're getting charged exorbitant amount of money for what they needed to get to do the temple, then for what they needed at the temple, and they left empty. They left empty. And so now let's pick up the scene. Pick up where the scene takes off. Luke 19, 45, and Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. Matthew 21, 12 says, Jesus entered the temple and drove out all that bought and sold in the temple and overturned its tables and the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. And he said to them, it is, is it, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a den of robbers. And then Luke 2, 13, it says, the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. And in the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers were sitting there. And he made a whip of cords. And he drove them all out of the temple and the sheep of the oxen and, and poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told to those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. Can I tell you, Jesus got angry. Jesus got mad. And that's okay because Jesus never sinned, right? See, some of y'all have had this big theological debate. Well, Jesus went and flipped over temple tables, but it wasn't a sin but he was angry and he was mad, but how did he not sin? And so we can't justify it in our head. It's probably because we got a wrong interpretation of what happened. And so in this, as we know this, as we're moving forward, Jesus got mad. I'll explain how, how he's justified in what he did here in just a second. Jesus got mad. Anger is not good. Anger is not bad. Anger is amoral. Okay? Amoral means it doesn't, it's not good or bad. It's, it's like a brick. With a brick, you can build an awesome, awesome church and expand the kingdom of God. Or with a brick, you can throw it through somebody's car window. Come on now. Y'all know you thought about that before. So is the brick good or bad? It's neither. The brick is how you use it. Anger's the same way. Anger's not good. Anger's not bad. Anger depends how you use it. If you this morning, I, I pray some of y'all get angry this morning. I, play, I pray some of y'all get flat out mad where you'll stand up and altar call and flip your own chair over and say, I'm done with this. You think I'm playing? I hope I hear catastrophe going on. Let's flip every chair in this place because you're going to be set free. See, anger, it's okay to get angry. Some of y'all need to get angry that your marriage isn't working out. You need to get angry that the devil's running away with your kids. You need to get angry about what's happening in the state of our, our country on a spiritual level. You need to get angry at yourself. Because anger, when you get angry at yourself, it can drive you to the presence of God. It can drive you closer to him. You can get angry and say, I'm fixing to make some changes in my life where I'm going to hear the voice of God on a regular basis. I'm mad at my spiritual standing. So God, I'm coming into your presence. Anger is a good thing. Or you can come into the house of God. You can hear a great, amazing message and walk out and your significant other can torque you off before you even get out of the parking lot. It happens. I, I didn't say you. Is this something we need to talk about? <laughs> and so, I just lost my whole train of thought. I got concerned. Or, before you even get out of the parking lot, you can have road rage at somebody. I'll say that one, because that one is me. 
You can have road rage at somebody. You can get mad and you can get out of the anointing of God because you got angry. Anger can drive you into the presence of God or it can push you away from the presence of God. Anger is not good and it's not bad. Anger is how you use it. And if some of you would get angry at your current situation, God says, good, now they're finally ready to do something. When some of you got, finally got angry that you were overweight, you finally started losing weight. But it wasn't until you got angry. And so when you get angry that your marriage isn't where you want it to be, you get angry that your kids aren't where they're supposed to be, you get angry not at them, but at how you're going to change it, and you're going to draw that all to the presence of God. God can do some amazing things. So anger is not good. Anger is not bad. Anger depends how you use it. Jesus got angry. Why was Jesus so angry? Jesus was angry because they were charging a price to hear the voice of God. They were cheating people out of money and their hard-earned everything that they did. God says, I want people to come into my presence. And I said, God said, I never charged you a thing for it. They were angry because the glory of God was being prostituted out to the highest bidder. They were angry, Jesus was angry because the glory of God, the voice of God, was being charged a price for. That'd be like before you come into this building, I charge you a certain amount of money just to walk in. And I'll never do that. I'll never do that. And when you walked in, you had to pay a certain amount of money, and then even come and pray at the altar, you had to pay a token. <laughs> and to hear, hear the worship, you had to give them money. Mitch says, heck yeah, I'll take money. Come on, I'm just playing, buddy. And they're charging for the glory of God. Do you understand why Jesus was angry? Jesus was angry because he knows he was about to pay the price. And he already did because he was already here. In fact, he already paid the price when God gave the first prophecy. He said, you'll strike his heel, but he'll crush your head. At that point, Jesus already paid the price. It was as good as done. And so Jesus comes to this earth in the flesh and sees that they're charging for the presence of God. And so he gets mad. He goes, he, goes off, he goes off. I like to say it like that. He goes off. And he said, you have made my father's house, which is called a house of prayer, into a den of robbers. And what, what Jesus is doing here is he's doing what we talked about in physical evidence sermon about four weeks ago, where Jesus would grab a, a verse of scripture from one section and a verse of scripture from another section and a verse of scripture from another section because the Jewish people knew the whole Old Testament so well. They had the first five books memorized by the time they're 12. Many of them had the prophets memorized by the time they were 18. And so when Jesus is just drawing sections of scripture, they're not just thinking, oh, Jesus said something great. They're thinking of who spoke it, when it was spoken, why it was spoken, and who it was spoken to. Like we talked about a few weeks ago, today you are my son whom I love and I am well pleased with. He said, today you are my son to King David whom I love to Abraham and whom I am well pleased with in Isaiah. And so when God began to declare all those things, they didn't just hear what Jesus said. They heard their king, their father of their faith, and they also heard that the greatest prophet of Israel all at the same time speaking with power. And so Jesus stands up and gives the greatest rebuke in all the Bible. He says, you have got my, my father's house is to be called a house of prayer. You have made it a den of robbers. He's quoting the prophet Isaiah when he says, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. It's in Isaiah chapter number 50-something. I got it right here, 56 verse 7. He said, you have made my father's house, or he says, my father's house will be called a house of prayer. And then he goes on to say the rest of that verse. It says, for all people. Now that adds a whole other intensity level to what the court of the Gentiles was. Lost people, saved people, all coming in. God says, I want all the people to hear my voice. Lost, saved, Jew, Gentile, t 
a voice for all people. I made a covenant with Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And they're charging money for my voice. So he gives the rebuke of the prophet Isaiah. Then he gives another great rebuke from Jeremiah. But you have made it a den of robbers. And Jeremiah 7:11 says, Has this house, which is called by my name, become a den of robbers in your eyes? And he puts a question mark. Behold, I myself have seen it, declares the Lord. Jeremiah wrote his book when he was already in captivity. So he is prophesying, listen, they may be out of captivity when Jesus comes, but spiritually they're still in captivity. So when he stood up and said, I'm quoting you the greatest rebukes of Isaiah and Jeremiah, everybody, all the priesthood said, all right, we got a problem. And they weren't respecting Jesus, saying, hmm, is he right? Maybe we should repent. They're saying, we need to kill him. We need to kill him. We need to get rid of him because he's causing a stirring among us. Now, Jesus in this, Jesus wasn't dealing with idiots. Hear me on that. Jesus wasn't dealing with idiots. He was dealing with a smart criminal. I mean, police officers can catch dumb criminals pretty quick, but when you got a smart criminal, it takes a whole other level to catch smart criminals. Your enemy, he's been around a lot longer than you. And you know what he does? You know his plan and his agenda? He watches you. He finds your trigger points so how he can break into your life. He knows what sets you off, not because, not because he's all-knowing. It's because he's watched you. He watches you. And he knows what torques Joel Meyer off, and he knows what sets him off, and he knows what can get him out of the anointing because he just watches. And then the opportune time, he throws the bait out there. And it's up to me whether I take it or not. It really is. But in this, the enemy, the thief, he's not dumb, but he's not all-knowing, okay? So when you are in the worst situation of your life, if you'll enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise in the midst of tragedy, the devil says, I don't know what to do with this guy. Come on. When your finances don't look good and you can just stand up and say, my God's going to supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. When you see a catastrophic thing and you start quoting scripture, the devil doesn't know what to do with that. It short circuits him. He's not all-knowing. So this is why when you do things in the deep, darkest places of your life that you think nobody sees, nobody may see it, but you're giving the thief the way to break into your house and to steal all you got. So Jesus here was dealing with smart criminals, and he was teaching in the temple daily, the Bible says in Luke um, 1947, and the chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the, the people were seeking to destroy him. They wanted to kill him. But they did not find anything they could do because all the people were hanging on his words. All the people were hanging on his words. And one day, Jesus was teaching, in the, uh, teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel. And the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things. Or who gave you this authority? And he answered them, I will also ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Listen, when you're struggling in your life, don't carry on a dialogue with the thief. Talk to the Father. Why you spend so much time talking to the devil? Talk to the Father. Jesus didn't waste any time with these people who were trying to kill him. And, and I always say, people always say, Jesus was so mad at the Pharisees. Jesus was against the spirit behind the Pharisees. Okay? He was against the forces driving them. And so Jesus said, I ain't got to answer you. You answer me. <laughs> Tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Now, here's the problem with that. 
The priests were in a quandary then. Because they had to answer, was the baptism of John, was it from heaven or was it from man? If they said it was from man, all the people would stone the high priest because they knew John the baptizer was a prophet. If they said he was from God, then they would prove that John is right and Jesus was right and he had the authority to say it. See, Jesus doesn't need religious approval because he doesn't have all authority. He is all authority. Jesus doesn't need religious approval. And some of you are trying to give religious approval to the power of God. Quit trying to give religious approval. Jesus is all power. He is all authority. He didn't have to answer religion. When you leave here today transformed and changed, you don't have to give an answer for your religion. Or, oh, what did you do? Well, I went and prayed. I went and did it. No, I received it. <laughs> I received it. God gave it to me. What, did you deserve it? Of course you didn't deserve it. None of us deserve it. Why are you talking with religion? God doesn't want us to hang on religion. He wants us to enter an authentic movement of his gospel with his power and everything that he has planned. And listen, religion will always question the power and authority of God. Religion will always question it. So when you are telling people about your born-again experience and when you got saved or when you're telling people about how you got set free and they begin to start thinking, well, they don't deserve that. I know what they did last week. You're right. We don't deserve it. But religion doesn't have to give an answer for God's power. Jesus didn't have to give an answer to religion about the power of God. See, the reason the priests were so upset with Jesus is because they were getting freely from Jesus what they were charging an exorbitant amount for people over here and were getting nothing from it. You want to know why they were hanging on Jesus everywhere? It's because they got results with the power of Jesus and they were getting nothing from religion. You want to know why churches are struggle people getting in? It's because we give them a religious experience, not an authentic power of the gospel of Jesus Christ experience where I don't want to explain it to religious people. I want religious people to experience the power of God. I want an authentic movement of the gospel in our church where people will see and receive and feel the power of God on their life to such a way that they live differently. Not because you got to, because you get to. Not because you can't drink, because you've been set free and you don't have to drink anymore. Not because you got to quit doing drugs, it's like you don't, you're not dependent on them anymore. Not that you got to keep running around from spouse to spouse to spouse to spouse to spouse. It's because you got fullness of joy because God has settled issues in your heart. Religious people don't understand it, but Jesus said, I'm not worried about the religious people. They're always going to question the power of God. I'm concerned about the people who want a touch from God getting a touch from God. And so Jesus breaks into the scene here. And this is where I believe the heart of Jesus Christ broke. I believe this was the tipping point. I'll say it like that. I believe this was the tipping point. When Jesus walked up to the temple and saw this fabulous, magnificent structure, and he saw all the people out here lost, hurting, and dying, and being ripped off and being extorted and being prostituted out, his heart got angry. His heart got angry. Not at the people. Jesus wasn't angry at the people. He was angry at what was driving the people. The spirit behind it. Jesus wasn't mad at Peter when he said, get thee behind me, Satan. He was upset with the spirit that made Peter act the way he acted. Jesus is not upset with you this morning. He's upset with the things that have victimized you that now make you act the way you act. He wants you set free, and your actions changing will show that you've been set free. 
Jesus is not mad at you this morning. Jesus isn't wanting to come throw you out of the church this morning. Jesus is saying, come to a place where you can experience an authentic touch of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because when I get the one who has been victimizing you, I'm going to flip that table, and he's got to run out and leave you, and you're going to be set free. Jesus is not mad. God is not mad. But God is angry and he wants to get the things that are driving us to do things that are not godly out of our life. He wants you set free. He's going to change your life. And I believe this is why the heart of Jesus was angry or the tipping point came. Because 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit? Basically in Jesus' time it says, Or do you not know that your body is the temple where the presence of God resides. And when Jesus saw the gross injustice that was being done at the temple, to the temple, the place where God's voice would come and his presence would come, he got livid because he wasn't seeing a a structure, he was seeing your face. The enemy victimized you over and over and over and over again, and Jesus said, I'm done with this. I'm fixing to flip over some tables. I'm going to drive out the things because his love and his passion for you is so great that he is not going to let you be victimized for the rest of your life. If you'll come into his presence, he'll change your life. He'll set you free. He saw you. He didn't see a physical structure. And so he begins to flip tables and drive people out that were doing injustices to God's people. Today, he hadn't changed his heartbeat. He wants to drive out the things that are doing injustices to your life. And he goes on to say, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, of the presence of God within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own. Tell you this you don't belong to you, and you don't belong to the devil. Say that again. You don't belong to you, and you don't belong to the devil. We just know you don't belong to the devil because you're born again. Can I get an amen? We know that you don't belong to yourself because it says you're not your own. You were bought with a price. The Bible says you were bought with a price. And Jesus, before he ever died on the cross of Calvary, knew that price. Because it was settled back in Genesis chapter 3. He knew the price. And because Jesus is not in a timeline, he is the beginning and he is the end. When he saw the gross injustice, he already felt the pain and the suffering of what he was about to go through a year later on the cross of the Calvary in that moment because he knew what was going to take place. But this is why I love Jesus being the beginning and the end all at the same time. Because this is what he says to you this morning. He says to you in Revelation 21.6, And he said to me, It is done. Jesus said, I am the Alpha, I am the Omega, I am the beginning, I am the end. To the thirsty, to the ones who came to the temple in our story we read, to the ones who came to church this morning, to the ones who came into the presence of God today, this is what Jesus said. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. Jesus wants to give you what you can't buy at a religious temple. He wants to give it to you this morning. He's not going to give it to you because you tithe or you write a bigger offering check. He's not going to give it to you because you pray in tongues. He's not going to give it to you because you dance in the midst of your worship. He's not going to give you because you spend five hours on your face in front of him. He's going to give it to you because he loves you and he's already paid the price for it. And he's going to give it to you freely. He's going to give it to you freely. 
And when you receive it freely, you'll dance when you worship. You'll want to speak in new tongues. You'll want to jump up and down and give God a shout of praise. You'll be happy to give him his tithe and an offering on top of that. Because you've been given so much freely, you'll want to give it all back. But see, here's the way the church thinks. Here's the way the church thinks. Even, even people in this building think this way. I've got to do so much right, and maybe God will answer my prayer. If I give a bigger tithe check, maybe, I, maybe that's the key. Jesus said, if you're thirsty, come. I'm going to give it to you freely. Religion doesn't understand it. Some of you guys, even right now, I rebuke this going through your head. You're saying, it's got to be more to it than that. There's got to be more to it than that. There's not. Receive it freely. You didn't get born again because you did so good. You got born again because you realized you were so bad. And you got it freely. Jesus said, I give it without payment. I love the way he phrased that. He said, I give it without payment. Damon, that doesn't mean it was without cost. He said, I give it without payment. I'm going to pay the price for it. I give it without payment. Marriage's restoration can happen right now, and he's going to give it without payment. Your kids coming back to your house and living under the kingdom of God and his principles, Jesus said, I'm going to give it to you without payment because I've already paid the price. It may be without payment to you, but it cost me a whole heck of a lot. Cost me a ton. It cost me everything, God said. So this morning, why was Jesus so upset? Then, the same reason he's upset now. He's not upset at you. He's upset that you're being victimized again. And you're thinking you've got to do so much right before God will move on your behalf. All you've got to do is call out to him and he'll move. And because he moves, you'll start doing right. You'll start doing more. You'll start living differently. So this morning as the worship team comes and gets ready, don't be a victim this morning. Because God never called you a victim. God called you a conqueror. He called you an overcomer. He said no weapon formed against you can prosper. He said everything your hands touches is blessed. He said you're blessed when you come in. You're blessed when you go out. The fruit of your womb is blessed. The young of your livestock is blessed. He says, I got my angels already working on your behalf. We in the body of Christ can no longer play, play the victim card. We must play this card, though. I receive it freely. It's not about rising up and being greater. It's about surrender and saying, God, I receive. Jesus already did it. He paid it all. This morning... I don't know who, what you're being victimized with. I tell you what I struggle with all the time, and this is my, my, what I, I continue to be victimized with. Getting a lot better. God's moving in my life on it. It's negative thoughts. Negative thoughts. And I know that doesn't sound like a big deal, but when you walk out of a church service and you're driving home and you think of everything that you messed up on, it's like, dang, how did I say that that way? That was, these are my words to myself. Joel, that was stupid. That's dumb. Joel, you're an idiot sometimes. And you know, that's what victimizes me. Some of y'all are thinking, how could you ever say that? I'll tell you how I say it. Because there's a way I envision of presenting the gospel that's so powerful, and if I don't meet it, I'm hard on myself. And what I got to learn is, Joel, just receive it freely. Just receive it freely. 
If you're thirsty and you want it greater, receive it freely. Come, it's not working harder. You'll present a more anointed gospel when you've been in my presence longer. And Jesus said, I'm not charging a price for you to come. There is no price for admission to come into my presence. So I don't know what's plaguing you. I don't know what your issues are. I don't know what your mountain is. I don't know what temple tables God's got to flip to set you free this morning. But, man, let's start flipping some stuff.